It's Hello, Hey, man. Alec? <laughs> Got it. Okay, so I spent the entire day rereading the first 52 pages of other people's money and taking notes so I'd be well prepared for our discussion. That's good. I took notes. I read most of it um, on my trip to Nashville on the airplane on Friday. Okay. So it's relatively fresh. Yeah. Is, are there any, down are there the any size of the pages? Jumping off points that you wanted to touch on? I mean, I like the, uh, I mean, you said read, make sure you read the parable of the ox. Cause I was going to mix, I was going to skip the prologue and the introduction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. Yeah. So what is the parable of the ox? Um, I mean, I don't want to read this whole thing, but I, I guess the, uh, it's basically the, the gist of it is, uh, they found that when the farmer brought his oxes to the market, um, instead of weighing the ox and, and when you could weigh the ox and then sell it based off the weight of the ox. Um, and then they started having these competitions where the crowd would try to guess the weight of the ox. And as time went on, they found that the average of the guesses of the weight of the ox by the crowd ended up being very close to the actual weight of the ox. And so as uh, time went on, they uh, they started to just take a, take a poll of the crowd and guess what the, and use that as a measurement of the weight of the ox. And eventually they just stopped weighing the ox altogether. And, uh, and so they were just basing, they're just basing the, the price of the ox on what other people thought the price of the ox should be based off the weight that everybody guessed. And then they also had contests where, um, they would guess what the crowd would be guessing. And then they had, and then people would try to play the game and guess what those people would guess of what the crowd would guess what the weight is. And so, uh, as time went on, they uh, they officially defined the weight of the ox as the average of everyone's guesses, and mm -hmm. so they ultimately removed the requirement to actually weigh the ox from deciding what the price of the ox should be. And then and then the last sentence says, and and then the ox died amid all of this activity. No one had remembered to feed it. Yeah, that's pretty clever. Yeah. So that's an extended metaphor for um, the financial sector and um, basically saying that the derivatives market has gotten out of hand, I believe. Yes, I think, yeah, direct direct uh, parallel to the derivatives market because they're guessing what other people would guess, what they would guess the market would do on whatever product they're pricing. And that has become more lucrative than the actual goods, services, and assets that they're supposed to be based on. Right, and it's it's uh, it's just so far removed from the actual value that the thing provides. It's yeah. almost it's almost a my my take on it is that it's uh, the finance sector is is a means to support itself. So it's a little uh kind of a little catch 22 ish, I think. Yeah. Kind Maybe of a a little circular logic. Marketing. 
you know, perpetual motion machine. Where it feeds itself and it's not necessarily adding value is what it seems like the author is trying to argue. Yeah. So I watched a, a lecture that he did and he was saying, he was pointing out a few different things. So one was that a, um, uh, some study showed that the value of derivatives in the world is two to three times larger than all the assets in the world. So um, that is one way of saying that there is uh, an overvaluation of the derivatives and would is therefore presumably creating a bubble. Um, and then he was... He also points out, well, a lot of the things he pointed out in that lecture were reiterations of what he says in this chapter. Um, and so from the parable of the ox, uh, the subsections of the chapter are called far too much of a good thing. So saying that it's, it's good to have a finance sector, but you can have too much of a finance sector. Um, and then he has uh, a history breakdown where he talks about the rise of the trader. He talks about new markets and new businesses. He talks about the robber barons and we are the 1%. And demonstrating how um, the financial sector has gotten away from the four core values or principal roles that it's supposed to provide, which I thought was a pretty illustrative um, identifier. So he's, he's pointing out that finance is traditionally and really only supposed to have four roles. One, providing wage and salary payments. So a payment system of um, transitioning value from, the com from a company to its employees. Number two is to match lenders with borrowers. And you can also phrase that as directing savings. So people go to the bank, they put their money into a bank, bank holds it as reserves, and then lends it out to borrowers. And then they get money based off the interest rate. Uh, the third principal role of the finance sector is to help manage personal finances across a lifetime and across generations. Um, and we see that a lot in, say, life insurance. And then the fourth principal role is to help with risk management. But... Um, so one of the most interesting statistics he pointed out in this lecture, and I can't remember if he pointed out in the book, is that um, when you ask people how do banks make money, most people think that they make money based off of lending. But uh, in most developed countries, lending is only about 10% of what a bank does or 10% of the profits of what a bank gathers. And in the UK, it's only 3%. So the vast majority of their activity and their profits comes from trading um, securities and maybe even mostly derivatives. So it, it's, it's painting a picture of, of things not being well represented, uh, of things having sort of run away in the wrong direction. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's, uh, it, he's a little, uh, too much of anything is, is not good, he says. And uh, I mean, in the big in the beginning of this, like, I don't know if it's introduction or first chapter, but uh, he's he's saying like, is it like, is this too much? Like, common sense says that this seems like too much if we're not really adding value 
and creating assets, then why are, why is this a thing? And, and is there something wrong with it? Is there, and is there something wrong with this common sense perspective? And then he says, no, not much. As he, he says, I'll conclude not much. And then he goes into talking about some of the things he says that a good justification for the, the finance sector is that it's a, an efficient allocation of resources to, to uh, satisfy the market. And then he brings in all the, the communist states um, because they were more of a centralized control of, uh, of their economies and um, we, and that communist communism didn't work very well. And that was mostly because capitalist societies could produce more and produce more faster. So I think the, uh, I think there, he, he talks about how it's finance has a good route. It starts in, you know, allocating assets and the resources efficiently. Um, but it's, it's gotten too big now. Yeah. And it's gotten too big by being able to trade off of things that I guess kind of don't exist or are overinflated. Um, so, so banks have a special designation that um, individuals don't when it comes to lending, and at least in the United States. And that is that they only have to hold 10% in reserve of whatever they're lending. So if they want to provide a $1,000 loan, they only have to have $100 in their reserves to be able to provide that loan. And the argument is that this kind of fractional reserve system is what what creates money in the economy. Um, but the, the problem is if too many of the loans default, then the banks no longer can provide, um, they can no longer stay in business and provide the services that they were created under. So um, there, I think there's supposed to be a lot of regulations and securities in place to help prevent there being too many defaulted loans. But if the, if a huge amount of these loans are going towards derivatives and derivatives are leveraged and therefore riskier, um, and then there is a enormous downfall in one of the derivatives market, which we saw in 2008 uh, with the derivatives of mortgage-backed securities, a class of an asset-backed security, where the package of the asset-backed security was worth more than the accumulations of the mortgages that were inside of it. And so because of this overinflation of uh, value, created a bubble and the bubble burst. And then what was it? collateralized debt obligations? Is that the other thing where it's like, that's what AIG did? I think, or or was it a credit default swap? There's a lot of these like technical. I don't. Yeah, I don't even know what the difference is between those two. I haven't heard that first thing you said, but I, I do know the mortgages. The one of the big problems with the mortgages was people just defaulted on them because the terms were they were adjustable mortgages. So they would have a good percentage in the first couple of years, and then it'd jump up to something ridiculous after the first when it started when it ballooned is what they'd call it. Right. So, but then they did something called like credit default swap. Oh, sorry. I'm not uh, familiar with that. Uh, so, a, so, a, uh, 
I'm, I'm actually confusing this with something else, I think. But they were doing something. So, yeah, you'd have a ballooning interest rate. But what would happen is a bank would trade their ballooning interest rate loan for um, a security from another bank that was a fixed rate. And I think part of this has to do with collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps. So let me see if I took notes on the collateralized debt obligation real quick. I don't I don't think I read that in this chapter. Is that out of the lecture? It's on page 39. Um, so the, the credit default swap was something that AIG specialized in. And it basically said if the securities uh, uh, in this package of this of this assets backed security are are going to default, then we will provide like a form of insurance and pay out. So it was so it was supposed to be a kind of security for the securities, the security for the assets. However, um, they were these insurances were overinflated and. They were incapable. The companies like AIG were incapable of actually being able to follow through um, with holding up on these credit default swaps in the case of a major market failure, which is what happened in two thousand eight. So here it has the line: um, "Little thought was given at the time to the capacity of the institutions that wrote these contracts to pay in the event of widespread defaults." Thus a, thus, a downgrading of the credit rating of AIG in 2008, which had insured over $500 billion of securities through credit default swaps, was devastating in its consequences for the perceived safety of bond portfolios. So bonds are supposed to be pretty safe, but the credit rating agencies like S&P were giving AAA ratings to really bad securities. Um, but everything was kind of... And you've seen the movie... Um, shit. What's it called? Oh, with Christian Bale. Short, the Big Short. Yeah. Yeah, the apocalyptic guy who said the uh, the sky is gonna fall, and he actually turned out to be right. Right. I think. Uh, I think. Well, I think it is a little scary because, um, and it makes sense that we had these these uh, the crash in two thousand eight, because then after the Great Depression, they. Uh, the government passed the Glass-Steagall Act in 1933, and what they did was separate the commercial and investment banking um, arms of banks. So I think the depression was caused by banks using like normal, uh, like commercial money, and using it in investment activities. And those investment activities were uh, were going to shit for them, and so. They couldn't pay the people who were giving them savings back when they asked for the money back. So they they implemented that act, and then uh, that was slowly eroded away. And it says the it was repealed in 1999. So back so in 1999 they were able to do most of the same practices yeah. that uh, that they were doing in the 1920s that caused the Great Depression. And then nine years later, the the next financial crisis happened. So it seems, I don't know if we, 
we reenacted that uh, that act, re-implemented it. But uh, it seems to me that we should be adding some sort of regulation. Uh, maybe we have, uh, but I didn't see that in the book. Well, something he mentions a couple times is that um, something that happens with regulation is instead of doing what it's intended to do is people just figure out a way to go around the regulation. So what the regulation ends up doing is it creates increased um, complexity in the system and it um, increases the number of transactions that are occurring outside of the regulatory net. Um, and he's in, in often in many cases, the regulation actually results in uh, the reverse effects of what they were intended to do because so it, he seems to be a little anti-regulation by and large, but it just raises the question, well, how are we supposed to fix you know, the schemes of these organizations? How are we supposed to keep it in check and, and make sure yeah. we don't ruin it for everybody? Right. I, I'm, I'm assuming he's going to talk about that in the next chapter. We just haven't gotten through the first one yet. Yeah, and the next I mean, chapter is This is a pretty thick book. And, it's a uh, slow read. <laughs> and especially in a topic that uh, neither of us are very well versed in. No. So the, it took me weeks to get through this first 50 pages um, of just like reading a paragraph at a time. I was able to get through um, – you know, skimming more or less the chapter again, and I think retain a little bit more information just today. But the, the, yeah, the, the first read through, it, I mean, it reads a little bit like a textbook and he's an economics professor at um, two different universities, including Oxford. So he's oh, a smart so you know, guy. He's, he's very exciting. <laughs> <Right>. But it, <laughs> it strikes me as very important stuff. It's just, it's, um it's it's he's when he speaks he speaks very calm and uh and and without a lot of emotion and kind of matter-of-factly and so i think it belies the importance of, of what this could actually be talking about just the just with the kind of tone that he has the kind of academic tone so what well, was yeah i think most people are dry if they're teaching economics to be honest yeah that's fair so what are some of your big takeaways from this chapter um i th i mean i think the whole we need some sort of financial uh arm to efficiently allocate resources and i think that's one of the biggest reasons why capitalism in general has beat out communism that's why the soviet union fell they couldn't they couldn't keep up with all the innovation and and just the amount of stuff that we could make, especially in wartime. And that's why I think Russia is going to lose in the Ukraine. Yeah, I, I would have a similar prediction. They're just we, the person who has the mostest and moves the fastest wins. <laughs> um, and I think the other takeaway I'm looking at my notes is uh, every time we, the financial institution fails, um, the the troubled organization that's that's going to go under if it's like a really big organization it just gets bailed out yes and it gets bailed out by the taxpayers 
and uh and i'm trying to find where i marked it and i think it's and i think it, there's like evidence of this in uh like all the way back to the 1800s in britain where the uh the banks let's see collapse of 1866 um so the most substantial was was bearings which was bailed out in 1890 right so they, i mean all the way back to the 1800s they uh they've been having i mean this financial entity has been around and they've been we've been seeing these these crashes and to save the save those organizations they're just bailed out and that's paid by paid by the common folks right so it's and really that i mean there's an aspect of it that's it's a kind of parasitic there is a parasitic aspect to it definitely and that was one of my big takeaways as well and it's something that he mentions in a line talking about how businesses have a tendency to um accumulate and conglomerate and and form towards monopolies so the question is when an industry is largely monopolized um what is the corrective measure if that if once it, that you know it's got the monopoly and it becomes complacent and the problem is if we keep bailing out the things that are supposedly too big to fail there is no corrective measure and we're prolonging the uh, inefficiencies Right. Yeah, you have to let it self-correct and let it die. right but we Why do you think why do you think they're they're getting bailed out? because they have the political Too many web ability to be able to get that money um and i think yeah because the these the finance sector is what makes the most money and it's also as he points out i believe in this book in this chapter um they're the biggest lobbying force and they're the biggest provider of uh campaign finances so they've Yeah, I do remember reading that. they've pretty much got the politicians in their pocket to be able to do what they want to do um Yeah, I you'll wonder if he's going to make a recommendation later in the book to say to separate, uh, like lobbying, somehow fix the like fix the flow of money from the financial sector to politics. It's tough, man. I mean, because if even if you outlaw it in the way that it is now, he's indicating, it, just as with any regulation, people just find a way around it, and it and unfortunately that creates more complexity um, in the system, and it also empowers nefarious activity, right? The same as with alcohol prohibition, possibly. I think I think there's a way. I mean, I think there's good regulation. I tend to I agree. I tend to lean the libertarian side of things where my default uh stance is fuck the government and less is always better. But I mean, it's not it's the system's not perfect and so you have to address that those imperfections with some with something and I think that something is regulation for for the most part. Yeah, I'm. I'm not anti-regulation. If a if a corporation thinks it's fine if they just dump all their toxic materials in a river or in a hole in the ground, we can't just say, "Oh, well, the free market will figure it out somehow." Right. I think I think Because it's that's good a to have. because that's an externality. That's the uh, the tragedy of the commons, where it's not 
you have to assign some sort of value to the thing you're doing. And if you're, if the environment is the thing that is, is paying the cost, no one, no one really cares unless, I mean, people are starting to care now, but no one cares immediately because that's not their money. They're not directly impacted. It's like everybody's right. problem. Yeah. They don't see the, the one-to-one cause and effect of how it affects them per se. Like why? Why should I care if I litter? The world is big. Why should I care if I drive a gas car? There's a billion other people that are doing it. Right. Yeah. So, um, are you interested in continuing to read this book and sort of go over it chapter by chapter? And is there any sort of way that any structure that you want to discuss it? I think I think this is fine. I think uh, knowing the how you prepared for it. I think I should, I'm going to do more than just write notes on the side of the pages. Well, I have that luxury because I'm on vacation. I don't know if that's something I'm going to do every single chapter. Um, but I wanted to, I think it's, it was a good idea to be able to revisit this chapter in particular because it, it gives you the history and the foundational framework of, mm-hmm. of how to go forward with the rest of it. Um, well, I mean, I think this... I, I think there's going to be a lot of material. It's going to be hard to go through, but I think we should do more than one chapter every time we talk. More than one chapter. Okay. Yeah. I know it's going to be difficult, but I think uh, See it's only chapter. like 30 minutes. How long have we been talking? Um, I don't know. I can't see it. Less than 40 minutes because we haven't been killed yet. <laughs> Drone strikes. So there's a total of 11 chapters. Okay, yeah, I mean, I agree. 11, say, hours of content, 11 episodes is a fair amount, but it took me a while to get through this first chapter. So um, should we shoot for two chapters next discussion? Yeah, see, uh, looks like two chapters is 50 pages. Right. Chapter two, risk, and chapter three, intermediate. Page 106. Yeah. I mean, this is pretty hefty stuff. I say we, I say we do this and, uh, and then switch to another topic at some point. Yeah. Or, or intersperse it, like break it up with something a little bit more accessible. I'm down for that. You want to try it? Yeah. We can, we'll, we'll just play it sort of episode by episode. Um, so if you're down for doing chapter two and chapter three for next time, that's good. I'm, I'm with it. All right. I'm cool too. Cool. Um, let's just flip through my notes here and see if there's, okay. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's dense. This, <laughs> this is a dense book and I'm just going to like say again, um, what it is. The book is called other people's money, the real business of finance by John Kay, which I guess we should have been a bit more explicit about at the beginning. Um, oh, my, and, uh, my book, my title says masters of the universe or servants of the people. What? Yeah, that's what mine says. Mine says other people's money, masters of the universe or servants of the people by John Kay. What edition do you have? I have masters of the universe edition, bro. <laughs> 
Um, I mine says is 2015. Yeah. Do you have the updated version? I guess they made it a more sexy title to sell more. Yeah. <laughs> the, because well, yeah, massive three dollars and forty nine cents on the on the front page. So damn dog, not too expensive. I think I, I paid my... more though. I bought it on Amazon, probably for like fifteen bucks. Well, I mean, I paid less than that, and this. So yeah, this is an earlier edition. I think this one's a twenty eight dollar book. It's in on the front cover, um, but I only paid six dollars for it on Amazon. So anyway, it says other people's money, masters of the universe, and what? It says masters of the universe or servants of the people. Okay. So what is the correct role of finance? Right. Yeah. So he's like, which one is it? Is it good or bad? So something I was discussing with my aunt today was what some of the effects of the covid stimulus monies were and i was having quite a difficult time trying to get the like a accurate number as to how much money has gone out to um gone out in total for the different covid stimulus monies and then um also exactly what they're allocated for because i had initially made the argument that most of the money went to large corporations. Now, having revisited the information that I could find on, you know, quick Google searches, that does not seem to be the case. It does not seem that most of the money went to large corporations. However, it does look like about half of at least one of the stimulus packages had money go to business in general. Um, and so one of these allocations was I think $454 billion to for um, the payment protection program, the PPP loans. Yep. But there is no auditing system in place to check and see if people actually use that money to pay uh, their employees. If the, if the companies, so, so they were given, and I, and I, I happen to know that that's true firsthand. Um, about with businesses of them just taking the money and using it however they want so the case that i was trying to make to my aunt and i didn't make the case very successfully to her was if most of the money that's being injected into the economy is going to businesses um, and a minority of the money was going to individuals say in, in the form of these stimulus checks like the 1200 ones um then a disproportionate amount of the value is being reallocated to the businesses at the expense of the taxpayer. Um, now, do you, do you know what I mean when I'm like trying to, what I'm trying to get across with those statements? Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. There's uh, I mean, they allocated some money for individuals and they allocated money to businesses in some sort of manner, maybe like, being able to pay people if they don't come into work. I think that's what paycheck protection program means. And, uh, and I know a lot of money went out. I don't know the exact numbers. I did see a news article recently that said the FBI is uh, found like it was either 200 million or 200 billion 
dollars of COVID fraud. I forget which it might be to totally very different numbers, but, uh, but <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of fraud and the FBI is chasing these people now over that yeah. money. Well, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was 200 billion because according to the different kinds of research I've done, it's something like $14 trillion that has been added injected. to the economy. Yeah. That, that's yeah. the, uh, I was trying to find that too. Cause I looked at that earlier. Because it was uh, like 80% of all of the cash in circulation was generated in like 2020. Right. Which is insane. Like that's got to have some effect. <laughs> well, it's ridiculous. I mean, like why wouldn't the value of the dollar go down by enormous amount? Right. Yeah. So that's the, one of the main causes as we learned in our basic economics class which i think you and i took together okay maybe it wasn't basic but um, <laughs> it was but, also a long time ago too so right but, but that's what they teach that's like the first thing they teach you in, in one of the first two things they teach you right it's like you print money inflation goes up the other thing is the supply and demand graph um so right. we know that this $14 trillion being injected into the economy is going to decrease the purchasing power of the dollar. But more, I think, insidiously, or at least also insidiously, is that when this money is injected to the economy, it is not being equally distributed. It's being disproportionately given to the large corporations, I think. Um, and so what that effectively ends up doing is it's a form of bailout and in a bailout is very simply robbing the taxpayers to make sure that these big institutions stay afloat. Um, yep. it, it robs your, but, but when you do it with inflation, it's insidious because it's robbing the purchasing power, but then you give people a little bit of hush money. So you get $1,200, not realizing that, maybe in real dollars of what you have to pay extra in inflation is going to equal to $2,400. So you're, I don't know. I'm yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at it now. So there was 5,000 million. What is this? This is M1 money supply. Oh, so 20 trillion now. So in 20, like right when the pandemic hit, like uh, June, May, April of 2020, we were a little bit below five trillion dollars in the M1 money supply, so like high fours, and then like two months later, we were at looks like seventeen trillion, <laughs> so four hundred percent, three hundred percent increase, four x yes. in three months, and and if you look at twenty five years, it's steadily been it was like a billion maybe 2 billion in 2000 and then maybe 3 billion in 2015 and then 2020 it was high for like almost 5 billion and then that same year a few months it went from 5 billion to 17 billion so it's not That's like insane. it's not like a normal occurrence um if you look at the graph so this is it's an insane insane increase so i mean i don't know what the effect is i mean at least inflation would be <laughs> At least that would be the effect. Like, where's all the right. money going? Where did all that money go? Okay, I have I have uh, a bit of a thought about that as well. 
So um, I think an enormous amount of the money has gone to banks to foster their reserves because they have been um, giving, as we established, the majority of what banks are dealing in is not lending to certainly not individuals and maybe not even just regular commercial loans. A lot of what I think they're doing is they're either indirectly through loans to say like a hedge firm or directly by in trading in derivatives is that they're taking on more and more risk. And so whenever there's like a significant market downturn, they're over leveraged, um, which would cause like a, you know, sort of like a bank run domino effect if um, things were to play out, oh. if, if these, if these over leveraged derivatives and loans were to default. So, so, they, what, so you think they bailed, a, bailed out the derivatives traders ahead of time? I, I think that either – I don't know exactly how, but it, as, as a lot of the news articles that I was looking up today based off the discussion with my aunt was saying, a huge amount of the money that went to the individuals ended up in banks because people were either paying off debts like credit card or mortgages or they were putting it into their savings. So even though the money wasn't directly allocated to the banks, the banks ended up getting the majority of the money that was issued to individuals. Um, and so I think that is now acting to help cover their losses that they were having in these derivatives tradings that probably suffered m quite re seriously when you have a serious market downturn. Because that's what happens when you leverage, right? Like you take on more risk and more reward. Right. I mean, now you bring up the derivatives thing. It seems like that they were preemptively printing like fuck tons of money or maybe not literally printing, but like creating it out of thin air in anticipation of all the financial markets crashing. So maybe the uh, this was the lesser of two evils. I mean, we could have let it crash. Maybe that was a better thing to do and let those companies die. And you're saying that um then perhaps these big um financial organizations should have failed in this new corona related right. yes. tragedy yeah so like yeah back to your point where you're saying that we're bailing people out bailing these banks out and these other organizations out and uh and maybe the right thing to do is to let them die so that we aren't propping up these inefficient structures and uh and to me may, maybe what they're doing is is exactly that with all printing all these m1 dollars i think there's yeah i, th I think there's a very solid argument to be made and i don't know enough the details to make the argument very solidly that the uh, an enormous amount of this yeah covid stimulus money was routed to the finance se sector to make sure it stays propped up um 
and then it's it's yeah this it's this circular kind of thing because so many of the politicians are funded by the finance sector so they're doing everything that's in the finance sector's interest what okay check this out so i'm looking at this m1 and m2 calculation and so we see in in 2020 it was like end of april beginning of may that week between april and may we went from uh well these numbers are a little bit less percent change well the other so for one thing this graph isn't showing absolute numbers it's showing showing percentage but this is where it goes from 4 billion to 17 billion and may of 2020 and then february 1st of 2021 they stop using m1 and m2 numbers as indications of an economy of how well an economy is going what? yeah so for i don't know beginning of the u.s this this information goes all the way to 1970 oh it keeps going so it looks like M1 was used, started to be used in 1976 as an economic indicator. And it's been pretty steady around 2.5 million to 5 million or 5 billion. I'm sorry, 5 trillion. And then in 2020, it goes up to that 17 trillion. And then uh, in 2021, here, I'll read the note. Federal Reserve announced that Regulation D would no longer impose limits on the number of transactions or withdrawals permitted on savings deposit accounts. According to this ruling, if a bank suspends enforcement of the six transfer limit on a savings deposit, the bank may report that account as a transaction account on its FR2900 reports. However, the bank may instead, if it chooses, continue to report the account as a savings deposit. Since banks have been flush with excess reserves since 2008, reporting savings deposits as transaction balances incurs no cost. On the other hand, it's not immediately clear, clear what advantage there is from the bank's perspective in relabeling savings accounts as transactions balances. In any case, it seems that the modification of Regulation D in late April has effectively rendered savings accounts almost indistinguishable from checking accounts from the perspective of depositors and banks. Accordingly, the composition of M2 between M1 and non-M1 components conveys little economic information. Uh, so, I don't know what that means exactly, but it's weird that they decided right when they made all of this money i don't maybe i'm misinterpreting this maybe they just classified it differently yeah but i think uh, so one thing that they talk about in the chapter that john k talks about in this chapter is about regulation q so regulation q had to do with uh, it pre-depression era the banks we're offering higher and higher interest rates on deposits, basically savings accounts. And so they were trying to out-compete with each other by offering higher interest rates um, so that people would deposit into their bank and they'd therefore have more funds to be able to lend and speculate with. However, uh, some banks were becoming irresponsible with the kinds of interest rate promises that they could provide and they couldn't really provide those interest rates. They were just saying those numbers so that they could get more people to deposit so that they could hopefully. And it's so I think it sort of had like a uh, pyramid scheme kind of things where they needed more and more people to deposit more and more to be able to provide the interest rates that they were advertising. 
And so what Regulation Q was after the depression was capping interest rates for deposits, aka savings accounts. And so part of um, John Kay's uh, criticism of that was that with this kind of increased regulation, it just created other types of accounts like money markets where you could have a higher um, interest rate without it technically being called a deposit. And so with this relabeling of savings accounts to transaction accounts, I wonder if they're trying to do something funny with like this kind of regulation where they are, are trying to have... I'm positive that they're they're doing something that's not equitable for all of the people in the United States, and that's and I know that because it's fucking confusing and it's confusing <laughs> for a reason. If right. it was if it was a straightforward law or thing that we were running, it wouldn't be so fucking confusing. Right, just how a lot of contracts are. Yeah, it's really like hard to read. it's complicated. On, it seems like it's complicated on purpose. So, like when some idiot like me reads it, it's like, oh, why the fuck is this happening? That I can't, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, an idiot like you like, with a nuclear engineering mean? degree. But yeah, you and I, who are of reasonable intellectual capability, hear that um, that passage, and it's just it's hard to parse out what. What's the real world value of that? What's what do those words actually represent? Besides, oh, banks are relabeling their kinds of accounts so that they can report their finances differently to have better taxes. Is that what's going on? So yeah, up above this part that I read, it also says, uh, like it comments on the fact that the graph there's a giant increase in the graph, and they say, oh well, we we made it easier to get credit and anticipation for you know, COVID to hit. And then it may also have something to do. It's like, they, they didn't even know, like they say one factor responsible for this behavior may be related to a change earlier this year to regulation D. And that's the thing that I read. And, the, and then before that, they say the increase is shown. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. If M1 carries the opportunity cost of not earning much interest and why has the M1 money supply been increasing? I don't know what that first part means, but they try to address the obvious fucking increase in money here. And they say, one, it has something to do with them uh, trying to get ahead of whatever might happen because of COVID by making credit more accessible. And then they also say <laughs> it may have something to do with Regulation D. They don't say it does. They say it may. Maybe for legal reasons, they don't want to be sued. I don't know. Right. That's that, but that's insane. Like, you know, Albert Einstein says, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't understand it very well. You don't right. understand it well enough. I mean, they have control. This is basically the bloodline of the whole earth right now because everybody uses the U.S. dollars, and people are are starting to change, get off the U.S. dollar, probably because they're pulling shit like this. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that was part of the appeal of the cryptocurrencies. But the, the problem is when you track the, say, price of Bitcoin against the S&P 500, 
there's a high correlation between the two. Nope. I haven't heard a convincing explanation for why that is, except perhaps that the majority of shares of the S&P 500 are owned by the same hedge firms that own the majority of Bitcoin. But right. I don't exactly understand those mechanisms. Well, I think Bitcoin is just so small that like one hedge fund could buy all of it right now. It's so small yeah, but, in relation to the size of like how much, how many dollars there are. Perhaps. I mean, like with its market cap. Yeah. But well, I, I mean, think... I mean, not with, yeah, it's market cap, not, not the 21 million Bitcoins theoretical total that it's going to have. I mean, that's right, how, their value. how much, how much money is in it right now? Yeah, yeah. But that's, that is offset by the hedge firms competing against each other to try to per se get as much as they can or get as right. much value out of it as they can. Well, I think I do think Bitcoin is is uh, an awesome concept. And I think that you have to have some sort of limited amount to go around because that's how you main that's how, the only way you're going to do it, in my opinion. Yeah. And uh, but the downside is that it is kind of inflationary because there's even though there's only 21 million Bitcoins, there's unlimited other cryptocurrencies that are still oh. being created. So it, right. it's kind of like nice try Bitcoin, but like, because there's so many other options out there. So basically it's even more inflationary than the dollar is just because the concept is so it's decentralized, which is kind yeah. of ironic. But, but, but then you get market corrections, right? Where, there is a downturn in the market and the the either the weakest or the most inefficient of those cryptocurrencies basically they go out with the tide uh, and and there's a lot of analogy i think between these different kinds of markets and an ecosystem right you know you get a, a fire that comes through a forest and the majority of stuff burns up or goes away because if, only, it, so it if only they had a seed, seed dispersal unit to uh, <laughs> randomly disperse seeds in a forest. If only. <laughs> hey man, I was uh, I was just trying to flex my hippie, <laughs> my hippie ambitions, even in eleventh grade. If anybody listens to this, no, they have no fucking idea what that means. No. And why, Do you want to... why it's funny? Okay. No. <laughs> Don't want to explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I, yeah i like the idea of cryptocurrency but when i i have been thinking about these overvalued derivatives markets and how they are leading to economic i guess instability but they keep getting the the banks and hedge firms that are making a lot of money off of them are keep getting bailed out because of they're over leveraged in these um, securities and these derivatives. I'm wondering, is cryptocurrency currently overvalued? I mean, it makes sense that over time, as as they're, you know, with Bitcoin being, you know, less and less new of it being put into the ecosystem, it's actually going to be deflationary. So it's going to be worth more and more. Um, and it's not infinitely divis divisible. It's it's divisible down to a certain point, which is a satoshi. Which I don't remember how many satoshis. Is that, is that the smallest it can go? Yeah. 
because otherwise I think you, you run into a problem of, um, yeah, there's an upper limit, no, but there's no lower li limit. It is 100 millionth of a single Bitcoin. Right. Well, that's, I mean, have, uh, having a lower limit's fine. It just means like, of course, if you go smaller in units, it's going to be worth less. That's by definition, like 0 0.001 is less than 0.1. I don't think there's any, unless I'm missing something, I don't think there's anything bad by it being deflation or it you can use a smaller and smaller amount of bitcoin i i think there is if something is unbounded either on the upper end or the lower end i think that's it's it's it can lead to inflation if nothing else i'm i'm starting to get a little tired now so i'm not able to put the argument together as well <laughs> but i think i think it needs to be bounded on I think it needs to be bounded on both ends. Something like a, a real material good like gold, right? There is there's more than zero and there's less than infinite. Well, same with same with Bitcoin. Yeah, more than zero, you, less than infinite. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you could have something like Bitcoin, which has an upper bound of how much is being produced. But if there's no lower bound, then it's infinitely divisible on the lower end, and so. I think that it loses some of its utility there. Although I can't think of exactly how or why at the moment. So it needs to be bounded, I think, on both sides to be of value, for it to be a scarce good. And then that scarcity is what helps provide value. Well, I think it, it is scarce. Well, Bitcoin is because it's got, it's got the... Yeah, it has an upper limit. It has an upper and a lower limit. I don't... I don't I don't see why a lower limit would matter because like one Bitcoin is, is one Bitcoin. It doesn't mean that 0.1 Bitcoins is going to be worth more than one Bitcoin or point a hundred zeros. One Bitcoins are going to be worth more than one Bitcoin. I, I, I think it just has to do with, I think it should be oh. infinitely divisible because if, what if some, one person ends up owning like, all of everything, even to the Satoshi, there's, and there's like uh, less than a Satoshi left to go around for the whole world. No, I, I think, think it, I think it would limit its utility by having a lower limit. I, I, I don't, but I can't think of a good argument for the moment as to why that is. Exactly, like, like gold is not infinitely divisible, right? At some point, you get down to the atomic level. And owning an atom of gold, first of all, isn't very valuable most of the time. Right. Um, Maybe a gram, half a gram. Right. So, so you need some like some well, some like, area of a realistic lower limit, and then you need an actual physical, like determined lower limit. And you you need just limits on things for them to be applicable in the real world. Yeah, I'll have to Google that. Search that. Why is Satoshi the minimum Bitcoin? Yeah, is it arbitrary? Yeah, I have to do that some sometime. Looks like there's a uh, Satoshi is the 
lowest, one Satoshi is worth 0.0002. So two hundredth of a cent. That's not that's not much now, but maybe in well, I think we're thinking of it years. wrong. Like the utility of Bitcoin with it having an upper limit is really only useful is if we start using it as currency. Right. Or unless we're only assuming it's going to be something like gold. Uh, no, yeah, we... you can hold, you can just hold value. Right. But see, the, the problem is if, if you keep cutting up the, the pieces of what one Bitcoin is into smaller and smaller things, I think, I think there's an issue there somewhere that you can just arbitrarily keep making, adding more zeros to the decimal. Um, yeah, but it's going to be worth less and less. Yeah. So like in, if you, I say, I don't, uh, maybe there's something, I don't, I don't see it. Okay. And I can't think of a good reason. I'm just hypothesizing. I said maybe the maybe like if for some reason somebody destroys like half the supply and we decide that oh well let's just cut it all in half but I, I don't think we would, would do that because it's still one you still only have one bitcoin that's worth the price per bitcoin would double because half of it would be gone yes the value yeah the price but but I think we're thinking of it wrong because it's we're saying thinking price per Bitcoin, because the in the Bitcoin utopia you're not going to have a dollar per Bitcoin. You're just going to be like it's going to cost ten satoshis per milk. Yeah. Per, per gallon of milk and like I don't know hundred satoshis per gallon of gas or whatever. Right. Per solar panel, I should say. Yeah, and, 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 a, and a thousand satoshis per house robot. <laughs> well, here's a, a question: Is when the Bitcoin mining ends in like the year twenty one? Sorry. Yeah, I think that's yeah, right. Twenty one fifty, twenty one fifty, or so. Yep. Um, will at that point is is the mining necessary? for bitcoin to be part of the economy of value so that when the mining ends will bitcoin therefore no longer be a way of holding value that's a good question i think the way i understand it is we still have to mine it to process changes in uh like when the transaction so when somebody moves one bitcoin from, from one wallet to another wallet, I think it takes some compute power to do that. So I think the value would be less in the number of like what miners get because there's not that 25 Bitcoin block reward every now and then. I think maybe it's 12 and a half now. But, but the value would be in the transaction um, cost yeah. because that's why you burn some Bitcoin to when you move one from another place that the amount of Bitcoin you lose goes to the miners. Oh, okay. But I think the, I mean, I think the fact that it takes up so much energy to do this, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I mean, I think it's bad. I think it's bad if it's, uh, you know, causing pollution to create the energy. I think it's kind of silly to do that, but at the same time, it's, it's like a hard 
it's tied to uh i mean it's like a hard limit it's tied to reality yeah. because you yeah. can't if you had infinite energy you could take over all the bitcoins but that's i think it's interesting because it's tied to a very fundamental fact of nature and it takes energy to do it and you know the they're moving from proof of work which is what bitcoin is to proof of stake it with ethereum have you heard about that yeah well, well, I mean, Bitcoin's always going to be proof of work, but the, but the, yeah, Ethereum has gone through a big fork recently, which will enable it to be staked, right? Yeah, proof In a way of stake. That Do you know what that yeah. means? It, it, it's way of, um, I, I don't know if artificially is the right word, but it's a way of keeping. Ethereum in reserve uh, so that it's not flooding the market. Um, but I don't know all the in ins and outs of it. But yeah, you stake something. So you're saying, okay, I'm going to set this aside for a certain amount of time and receive an interest rate on it. And then therefore, I'm keeping it out of the economy and helping prevent inflation by keeping too much of Ethereum going into the economy. Am I on the right track at all? I think, yeah, I think it's in general, it's more efficient. Um, but I think the, I don't understand how they do the work. So I think, uh, the, from what I understood is instead of proof of work, the, the work is what determines the value right, right. So of a Bitcoin and then proof of stake is, I think it's like, if you have half of the half of the money i think it to me i understood that like if the people who own the most get the most benefit because like you just because you have more of the percentage of the blockchain you have more of a say in uh when transactions are validated mm -hmm. i should be butchering this i thought i understood this better but now i'm like looking this up it's uh, proof of stake is incredibly complicated. But the, I think there's also a lot of different ways of how you can do it. But that, the, the basic, um, I think the fundamental aspect of it is to, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's based off of you withdraw some of the coin from circulation by staking it. And then your incentive to do so is you get an interest rate on it. Um, and that interest is part of the new coin that is produced into the ecosystem. So new coins are created through interest of staked coins. But, um, and so part of the hedge against inflation is that people are incentivized not to put money into the economy except when they need to because otherwise they're going to be earning rewards on the staking so that's my general overview of it yeah i'm reading this now so it says to become a validator of ethereum you need to have tap you will need to stake 32 ather worth roughly 45,000 as of september 2022 to run a validator node so they're saying uh uh, blah, 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 blah. Sorry, I'm trying to find what I read. Um, 
sorry, proof of stake, miners are more likely to win additional blocks if they have more money. Eth Wait. Ethereum in this case, or Ether, they call it in the case of Ethereum. In other words, proof of stake relies on proof of how much stake users have. So the more money you have, the, <laughs> the more you're, you have the chance to consolidate, like add more Ethereum to your holding. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same with money in the finance sector. The more money you have, the more you can put into an interest-bearing account and the more that money that you generate. So, yeah, that's just, that's just how <laughs> money works. Those that have get more faster than the have-nots. Yeah, see, they say critics also argue that the system risks leading to more centralization. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. And, well, it does. It's it's hard to. It's things are always. I think the human endeavors are going to. Like everything is ends up being it, centralized. Yeah, I mean that's that's the idea of like the singularity is. Um, these businesses and these organizations are we're as we become more organized um, we tend towards streamlining and integrating everything and so that's true within an individual sector so that like when it comes to supermarkets you know walmart kind of like eats up all the others and you get this vertical and horizontal integrations um, and it's facilitated just in like globalization so that everything is becoming more interconnected and um i think i think it happens in cycles i think it's going to be times well, it where should. it's really where it leads to really high centralization i think something happens it could be a crash it doesn't have to be negative but then i think things new things happen and they become centralized then it centralizes up in the future after that, and then something else happens. Well, well, yeah. There, there's always there, there is always eventually going to be a corrective mechanism. <laughs> but when we artificially try to prevent it from happening, I think it only staves it off and makes it worse further down the line. So, um, for example, um, population density, we get corrective measures with disease um so that you know yep. it's it's more and more dangerous to live in a city when there's more and more people because you have more vectors um and, and so that is part of the that, that that is one corrective mechanism and and similarly you're going to have corrective mechanisms in the market where these over inflated companies should topple but anyway, I'm revisiting the same topic now. I, I think you're, I, I agree. I mean, it's all, in, we can end it soon, but I, I say that's exactly what happened with COVID. I mean, yeah. it could have killed a lot more people, but then pesky humans invented a vaccine and prevented a whole lot of people from dying. Yeah. Whereas, so whereas if we let it run its course, then the population would have probably crashed. A lot, well, more, you know, more significantly. If we'd let it run its course, then you and I would have social security when we turn sixty-five. But <laughs> well, that's looking on the bright side. <laughs> but because we let all these old people live, yeah, um, all the diseases, all the 
all the crazy people who have have support structures all of the people who have i guess diabetes and now we have insulin cancer treatment all this stuff we're propping up a bunch of people who aren't necessarily adding value in the economic sense whereas 50 probably just even 50 years ago those people would have died more quickly and would right. have been less of a drag on the on the economy but i mean nobody wants to have that conversation and i mean it's a little uh i don't know sociopathic i guess to think yeah, of it that I mean, way there, you, there you, is... want your, you don't want your fucking grandma to die Nobody wants nobody, that. Nobody wants their grandma to die. Um, and, and there's good arguments to be made that just because someone's not providing a bunch of value at a desk job doesn't mean that they can't provide value in other ways. Um, but at some point, we also, I do think, have to have the perspective of like, okay, how how much is all of this, these chronic preventable diseases, how, how much are they overtaxing or say healthcare system that prevents or leads to um, collapse or inefficiencies. And, and then everybody's becoming more diseased on average because we can't do preventative me- medicine because we're also overtaxed trying to cater or, or administer treatments to preventable diseases because, and it's just kind of a, Again, one of these um, negative feedback loops. But yeah, so we need difficulties in our lives to be able to gain experience and um, really virtue. But, and, and then, you know, sort of going off on a tangent by, by, choosing to undergo difficulty and by practicing difficulties for example exercise um, we therefore can combat and stave off the accidental um, tragedies and difficulties all right i've lost you oh where i was i was muted we're all going to die one day. And maybe yeah. that's the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> well, that's the only, that's the only real check that we have. We can't be immortal. Right. But that's, that's, that's an upper bound, right? We've got the lower bound of our birth and we've got the upper bound of death. And I think that, that I mean, that's just an analogy of, of, of how we need bounds to be able to value things. And to have things be related to each other. Otherwise, if everything is just infinite, it's a mishmash. Mm, I, st- I still don't see the... Uh, I mean, I agree that there's a lower bound, obviously, for humans because we were born at a time. Uh, but I don't think there's necessarily value for Bitcoin not being infinitely divisible. Yeah, I I would have to really sit down, I think, and try to hash out the argument for that. But I guess it's just because, I don't know. No, I can't think of it right now. Sorry. So uh, next time. Yeah. Next time time I also want to um, bring up 
this idea I have for that I was inspired for from reading uh, Black Swan. Have you read Black Swan or do you know Nicholas Taleb? I've heard of Nicholas Taleb. I'm trying to remember his middle name because he goes by the he goes by like all three names together. Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Nassim was on. Yeah, yeah. Rogan. Is he the uh, what does he do? Is he the guy that was in? He was in. Uh, oh my God! Was he the freaking extremist? Yeah. And he was in jail for a while, and then he. Oh. That's not no, him. I don't think he was in jail, but he does. He has a like fat tailed economic models. So he he says that like Gaussian bell curves are very unrealistic and that there it's like forcing statistics he's he's saying that basically statistics and a lot of mathematical models and science in general is trying to conform things to a gaussian bell curve which isn't a true representation of reality what he's saying reality looks like is is like something like a fat tail where you've got this huge um lump on one end and then this relatively low amount of um, data all the way rests across the graph. So that <clears throat> what that means is that um, singular or rare events tend to take up the bulk of the impact. And one example would be like temperature fluctuations and then in relation to a meteor impact so by and large over the many years of earth's history you're going to have this um very low line of what the temperature fluctuations are going to be like and then you get something like a meteor impact and in that very short amount of time you're gonna have this huge uh, data input so that's part of what this fat tail statistical model is but um so what did I bring? I, okay, so I after I read Black Swan, which is he's which is the it has to do with how significant uh, of an impact very improbable events have. So over enough long enough in the timeline, something very improbable and very catastrophic is probably going to happen. And so he did an options trading strategy based off of this. And as far as I can tell. He was on a daily basis securing very cheap put options. I don't know how much you know about options. Um, I know I know how they work in general. So anyway, I want to talk to you about this next time. How I think what he was doing was on a day to day basis getting very cheap put options. So saying that um, a stock was going to drop dramatically, and on a day by day basis that didn't happen. So he was losing money on these put options. And then in the hopes that eventually there would be some major... Oh, yes. I, I remember caught... Yeah, I remember talking about this now. He's yeah. he's basically saying the sky is falling like every day for a certain period of time. And then he was right one of the days. And then and, and he made a fuck ton of money. Thing. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a smart way to do it. And I, <laughs> I assume he would pick the puts, puts that uh, had little downside if he lost it, but a lot of upside if he gained. Well, yeah, exactly. And I can... So it's like a five can, cent cost every day, and then but it's like a trillion 
x return if it's right well, that's not quite the spread but that, that's the idea um so you you can't buy as far as i can tell um well i i should say that most of my investigation into pricings for puts and calls and options has been on Robinhood, so that's not the best um venue to be doing this kind of a research but as far as i can tell the cheapest option that you can get is a dollar because and that's a uh, hundred shares at one cent right uh -huh. and then, <clears throat> sorry and so um the shorter the time frame of expiration um the cheaper the option contract so you just find whatever option contract looks the best for a dollar. So as far into the future at as high of a price as you can get. And so you just, I mean, I'm, I'm basically telling you what I wanted to talk about. I mean, this yeah. is my idea of what the black swan options trading strategy is as if nothing else, an insurance against um, catastrophic devaluation of a stock or the stock market. Um, anyway, but let's talk about that next time. I'm down for that. This, uh, we covered chapter two and three of Other People's Money by John Kay. Finance. Finance and sure. All right, man. Well, yeah, thank you for the talk. I hope it was as good for you as it was for me. Oh, it was very good. I came. <laughs> and I saw and I conquered. <laughs>